everyone and welcome to the well here at STSA. Great to see so many people here today. It's a unique Sunday here at the well. And the reason why it's unique, as Joe kind of alluded to in the beginning, we are speaking about a topic that we talked about many, many, many months ago back in December. We're actually in part three of a series that we started in December, and then we kind of stopped for about six weeks, or probably more than that, right? Probably 12 weeks by now, and then we're continuing it today. And the reason why, okay, the series is called Untold Stories. For those who remember, remember back in December, we had a couple weeks where we talked about these forgotten fathers of the church, and then we had that one Sunday where we weren't here at George Mason. Y'all remember that? We had to, they were closed here, so we went to, to, to pray at uh, Williamsburg Middle School. And then remember the fiasco that occurred right there where we were supposed to start, like the guy was supposed to get there at 7 o'clock. We were supposed to get in at 7.30. We showed up at like 7.20. He showed up at like 9.30, okay? So we all sat out there and waited and waited and waited in the cold. We had a great time because we were all together. We were hungry. We were tired. But anyway, by the time he eventually showed up, we got things set up. We canceled the well. And then the week after that was Christmas. So we canceled the well. The week after that, I broke my back. So we canceled the well. The week after that was the second Christmas, because we're Orthodox, we get two Christmas. Okay, back to back. So we canceled the well. The week after that, we had a foot of snow on a Sunday, so we canceled the well. So we had like six Sundays in a row. So we kind of buried this series way back then. We kind of just threw it away. But then as it turns out, we have a couple weeks in between this series and the next one. So we said, hey, let's dig it out of the snow and let's come back and talk about this subject. So we're going to talk about untold stories. We're going to talk today as well as next week, I won't be here, but Father Elisha, a good friend of mine, will be here, and he'll be speaking, continuing the topic as well. And for those who can't remember what the series is about, just a quick reminder. Basically, what we're talking about is we're looking at our common heritage as Christianity. All Christianity, as divided as it may be today, unfortunately, shares a common heritage, one root. So you may have many leaves or many branches, but the root is all the same. And it goes back to the church from the first century, second century, third century, fourth century. So what we're looking at in this series is some of the forgotten names of the forgotten fathers, the forgotten saints who helped pave the way for all Christianity today. It's easy to forget if you're not a history guy. I'm a history guy. I love to look back at history, think it's the best way to know what's going to happen in the future, is kind of look at what happened behind. It's easy to forget that if you just kind of look at Christianity, just kind of showed up today, you would think Christianity has always been like this worldwide movement. And you would think that, you know, if you read the, in the New Testament, you would, you'd think like, okay, there was Jesus and his disciples, and there's really no one else on the planet. So sometimes it's hard to forget that Christianity, as big as it is today and as worldwide as it is today, started much differently. It started off as barely anything that, a, barely a blip on the radar. When Christianity first started back in the first, second century, okay, Christ was uh, born in roughly zero, they say four BC, but let's say first century, and then after he died in the year 33 AD, okay, that first century church, second century church. They were not the worldwide movement, the worldwide force that we sometimes think they were, that we kind of talked about them as. They were a ragtag bunch. They were a group of guys who were kind of like these renegades because they bucked the system. Because the system was the Greeks had their gods, the Romans had their gods, the Egyptians had their gods, everyone had a system of gods. And then these Christians showed up and they say, who are your gods? And they say, we don't believe in any of your gods. We don't believe in any gods of these at all. So the Christians actually, ironically enough as it is, in the first century were called atheists because they didn't believe in the gods. And all they believed in let me tell you a crazy story. 
They believed that this criminal who was received punishment for his crime, that he rose from the dead. And that's who they follow. And they won't worship anybody else except him. And they believe that they gather on Sundays and that he's there and they eat his flesh and drink his blood. Ah, Christians were seen as weirdos. They were seen as, as, as this ragtag bunch of guys, this, this, this misfits, and there's no way to last. When Christianity first started, there was no Bible. There was no doctrine or theology that was formulated clearly. There was no hierarchy or structure as we see it today. It was basically a bunch of guys with this crazy belief and a super strong faith in it. And the New Testament, when we look at the New Testament, the New Testament doesn't do much to help us see how it got from that to what it is today. 2.2 billion people on the planet call themselves Christian. The New Testament covers like the first 30, 40, 50 years of Christianity. And basically, during the time in the New Testament, it's like, you know, there's these group of guys and they go places and then people try to kill them. So they run away to another place and they do like a miracle and then they run over there. And it's just a bunch of scattered guys, but there's no cohesive theme or there's no cohesive way to see how they went from there to where we are today. All they had was some scattered sayings of Jesus, okay, not compiled yet in the Bible. They had some scattered writings. They had some letters from some of his disciples. And then they had these letters from a crazy guy named Saul, who one minute is killing Christians and the next minute is writing about them. So you don't know what to make of this guy. That's where Christianity left off when the New Testament finishes. But the good thing for us is that even though the New Testament kind of ends abruptly, Christianity does not. So what is the connection between what we see in the New Testament and what we see today? Well, the answer is the fathers of the church. And the fathers of the church, the church fathers, they are to the church kind of like the founding fathers to America. So there was a group of guys, 1776, what is that? 200-something uh, years ago. 200-something, yeah, 200-something years ago. Group of guys that got together, is that 200-something years ago? 300-something years ago. Is my math off? In 1776, okay, that came and they had this belief in this thing called democracy. And they had this belief that we don't need a king, that we need a president. And they had this concept, this idea, and it was just a seed. It was just like a burning passion in their heart. And they gave their lives for it. And they fought for it to death. And that's why we have United States of America today. Well, the church is the same way. There's a group of people who had this seed that was planted inside them by our Lord Jesus Christ. And they believed in it so much that they fought for it and gave their lives and gave us the church as we see today. Our patron saint, St. Athanasius of Alexandria, says this about true Christianity, true Orthodox Christianity. How do you define it? You define it this way. It's what Christ taught, the apostles preached, and the fathers preserved. That's a beautiful way of saying it. Christ brought it, the apostles proclaimed it, and the fathers protected it and made sure that it stayed intact. And that's who we're talking about in this series. Every week we're taking one of the church fathers. All right, we took two in the, again, back in the beginning of this series. Anyone remember the two that we talked about back then? Anyone know? First one, name began with an I. Ignatius, very good. Anyone remember the second one? Wasn't really a guy. It was a letter to? Dio something. Okay, very good. We'll take that, okay? We talked about a letter to Diognetius. Okay, which was written by a guy, but we don't know his name, but the letter to Diognetius. Well, today we're going to talk about a different church father who's going to give his answer a different question. The church fathers, again, these are the guys 
who there was no doctrine on Trinity, these are the guys who formulated this is what Trinity means. There was no idea about how do we worship God. It was just kind of every man for himself. These are the guys who said, this is how worship is supposed to look like. These are sacraments. And one of the main questions that these guys answer, which I kept teasing at the beginning for you to remember, is these are the guys who gave us this book. These are the guys who told us what's supposed to be in the Bible and what does the stuff inside it mean and how do we interpret it. Let's talk about the Bible a little bit right here. A Bible is something that all Christians all over the world look to, read, hopefully, some memorize. And we look at the Bible and we hold the Bible up. But very few of us ask ourselves the question, where did the Bible come from? Did it come down from heaven? Did Jesus dictate it? Did St. Paul sit down and write the whole thing and say, get rid of this, put this in, include this, this is what this means? The Bible as we know it today, best-selling book in all mankind, translated into every, little lang every language, the only thing that you can go to a hotel and get for free is the Bible. We argue about what it means, but there's one page in the Bible, one section that no one ever argues or even discusses. You know what page that is? If you can see, it's this page, the table of contents, the one we all take for granted and just assume, like I said, it came down from heaven. What we're going to look at today is where did this come from? Where did the table of contents come from? How do we know what's in the Bible? How do we know what the Bible means? And specifically, we're going to answer two questions. These are second century problems. The problems they had back in the second century was a problem of canon and covenant. And you're going to feel really smart at the end of today. I'm going to make this sound, I know this sounds complicated, but trust me, this is very, this is very easy. They needed to know, they asked questions that we don't even, we never even realized existed. And the first question was a question of canon. Canon means how do we know which are the right books? How do we know which books are in the Bible and which books should be out of the Bible? Do you think that there were only four Gospels written? No. That would have made it easy. If there was only four guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they wrote the Gospel, and everyone else said, okay, that's great. But did you know that there are more than 80 Gospels that can be dated back to the first and second century? There's Gospel of Thomas. There's Gospel of Mary. There's Gospel of Judas. I don't know why anyone would think that one's good. There's all kinds of Gospels and in the second century, they had to determine which ones are in, which ones are out. Can you imagine if you had to do that today? Like, we have a hard enough time understanding this. Imagine I give you 80 Gospels. First of all, for many of us, it takes us a year to read one of the Gospels. So if I give you 80 of them, that's a whole lifetime worth of reading. And I tell you, you read all these 80, and you figure out which ones are authentic and not authentic. That's a big job, but that's the job they had to do back in the second century. The second is a matter of covenant. Once you figured out what's authentic, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which writings of St. Paul are legit, which of these are fake apostles, now you have to figure out an even harder question, is what is the role of those writings? And how do they fit into the writings of Moses? How do they fit into the writings of the prophets? Are they on the same level? Are they on a higher level? Are they on a lower level? Like, do we just take what Jesus said, like in the Old Testament, there's 613 commandments, but then Jesus gave commandments. Do we just take what Jesus said and add them onto those? Or do we delete those and replace with those? What is the covenant? What is the relation between the old and the new? We take for granted the ability to hold the Bible, read the Bible, look up 
certain verses, put it on the background of our phone. But these guys in the second century didn't have what we had. And that's where our hero for today comes. And our hero for today was the first one to step into this arena of canon and covenant of the Bible. And his name is Irenaeus. Say Irenaeus. Irenaeus of Lyons. Or if you are sophisticated, you would say Leons. I will go with Lyons because I am not sophisticated. Irenaeus of Leons. Call it whatever it is that you want. It's a city in France. Irenaeus was the first guy who entered the arena of the Bible. And he did not sit down and give us, like, this is book one, book two. He didn't give us the table of contents. That actually didn't come for another 200 years after Irenaeus. But he was the first one to enter the arena and address the subject of canon, what should be in and what should be out, and covenant, how do we interpret those books that are in and out. Let's talk a little bit about Irenaeus and learn a little bit about his life. Second century guy, born roughly in the year 120 AD, died in the year 202 AD. We don't know his date of death for certain, but we know that the city that he lived in had a great persecution at that time. So it just seems like a convenient time to say he probably died during that time because no one really knows when he died. He was from a city in Asia Minor called Smyrna. I say Smyrna. Does anyone know which famous disciple of Jesus Christ was also associated with Smyrna? John the Beloved. So you had John the Beloved, who was the one who was close to Jesus, and then he would, would started the church in Smyrna. And then he had a disciple named Polycarp, and that was his successor. Irenaeus was the successor to Polycarp. So he's two degrees removed from St. John the Beloved. See how that goes? So you could say he's kind of the grandchild of St. John the Beloved, okay, spiritually. One day, Irenaeus was chosen from his city of Smyrna to go to the city of Leons and to serve there as a priest, as a presbyter. And while he was there, he was serving right there, they, he, asked, he was asked to carry a letter from France over to Rome. So he took the letter and he went out to Rome to meet whoever hierarchy and give whatever letter, do whatever piece of business. When he got there, they told him, Irenaeus, we have good news and bad news for you. Two things have happened along your journey while you were journeying from France to here. The bad news is a great persecution arose. Many people were martyred, including the bishop. The good news is we voted, you're now the bishop. So you see what happens when you miss a meeting at church? Always, never miss a meeting at church. You always get assigned something that was, you weren't signing up for. He finds out he's the new bishop of Leon's. And he goes back and he now has to face the society and the culture. And tell me if this sounds like it rings a bell. The culture in the second century in the city of Leon's was a society that was disenchanted with organized religion. And it was a society that always wanted to find something new and exotic. And the old stuff, that's for the old people. That's for our parents who are from another culture. But the society was always looking for something new, something eye-catching, always looking for, oh, here's a, here, here's a new idea that's gonna revolutionize whatever. And in midst of that society, Irenaeus confronts the false teachings about Christ and about the church and solves this issue, or not solves it, but enters the arena of canon and covenant. 
But before, so before we can see what he said, let's understand the context of the people around at that time. There was three groups of people in Leon during the second century. The Ebionites, the Marcionites, and the Montanists. You know these, of course, from, from probably kindergarten Sunday school, right? Okay. These were three groups of heretics who all lived in the same area that Irenaeus had to overcome their false teachings. What were their teachings? Well, let's start with the Ebionites. The Ebionites were Jewish Christians who basically said their teaching was very simple. That in order to be Christian, you had to first be Jewish. And not only you had to first be Jewish, but you're never really Christian because Christianity is just a completion to Judaism. They saw Judaism as the masterpiece and this Christianity stuff as just like perfect last chapter to it. But it wasn't a shift. It was just basically an addition to. So they believed you had to keep the same dietary laws. They believed that you had to do all the same sacrifices. They believed that you had to be circumcised, which obviously was not the most pro-evangelism thing in the whole wide world, but that's what they taught. And they believed that Christianity was really nothing more than just a continuation of Judaism. What did they believe about Christ? They believed he was just another prophet. A good prophet. Elijah was a prophet. Daniel was a prophet. Jesus was a prophet. None of those other prophets required a rewriting of scripture or a new covenant, so neither did Jesus. Now you're sitting there and saying, like this is like basic. Like the Bible clearly tells us that Jesus is more than a prophet. But what's the problem with that argument? There was no Bible. That's the whole point. St. Paul clearly says that Jesus was more than just a prophet. He was the son of God. But who says St. Paul knows what he's talking about? In fact, these guys, they didn't like St. Paul. And they did not see the writings of St. Paul as scripture. They viewed him as like a weirdo, like a renegade, an outcast. And in fact, these guys, they said the only scripture that they accepted of the New Testament that we know, they accepted only of the Gospels, Matthew. But even the Gospel of Matthew, they took out certain parts, specifically the virgin birth. Because Jesus was not the son of God born of a virgin, he was just a great prophet. So they cut that part out and they kept Matthew throughout all the rest. So for them, the Ebionites, Jesus, just a continuation of Moses and all the rest of the prophets. Let's go to the Marcionites. The Marcionites, I think the Marcionites, and I tell you what they believe, some of you are going to say, that kind of makes sense. This is why it's important that we discuss this stuff. The Marcionites were the opposite of the Ebionites. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been reading the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, and struggled to make sense of how the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament? You ever struggle with this? We all have. Everyone's nodding their head. Like, how in the Old Testament, war and killing, and in the New Testament, love and grace? How in the Old Testament, it was eye for an eye, and the New Testament was love your enemy and love your neighbor. So what the Marcionites did, they solved this very simply. And again, be careful because some of us, they said basically there's two gods. There was the God of the Old Testament, God of Moses. That was an evil God. There was a wrathful God, a judgment God. Then there was the God of Jesus, the Father of Jesus. And the Father of Jesus sent Jesus to save us from the God of the Old Testament. They believed that the God of the Old Testament made the physical world. That's why for these guys, whenever they looked at the can, like when they looked at the scriptures, 
anything that referred to God creating the world, they threw that out. Like they like St. Paul, because St. Paul was all about grace and new covenant and all that. But anything where St. Paul says that God is the creator of the universe, no, no, no. Because they can't have the father of Jesus being the creator of all that is evil. And that's why they look at a passage from the Old Testament in Genesis where it says that God walked in the garden with Adam. You know that passage in Genesis? That God walked with man in the garden. And they say, see, that's proof. There was a physical God, a God of this world, that's the Old Testament, and then the God of the New Testament is the spiritual God who came to save us from that God. Some of us are like, I can buy that. That can make sense. That's why we got to be careful, and we'll see why that's messed up and why that's no good. So you had the Ebionites, all old. You had the Marcionites, forget the old, just new. And then you had the Montanists who were forget the old and the new, let's go newer. And they believed not just in the old and in the new, they believed in a newer. What they believed is that the scriptures as we know it today were incomplete. That Jesus came, that Moses came, that Jesus came, and then the real guys came. And they believed that there was this man called Montanus and two ladies, and they believed that these were the real prophets. And they even gave themselves a name. They were the paracletes. They were the ones sent by God to complete the true picture of what Christianity is all about and to paint the picture of who God really is. So there was Moses, and then Jesus finished off him, and then Montanus finished off him and completed him. So, y'all got the Ebionites, Marcionites, and the Montanists. How would you respond to them? Do you know how you'd respond? If someone were to come to you today and say the issue of covenant, we don't need the new, we only need the old. The new is just a completion of the old, it's not new. Or someone comes to you, and by the way, the person that would say that, if you're thinking that, what you're saying is, we, got it, we can't eat pork, women can't come to church on certain days in the month, okay, and we got to go to the temple and start killing all the cattle and all that kind of stuff, so go, go to a farm as soon as you can. Another group would come to you and say, no, no, the Old Testament's useless, we don't need the Old Testament. All we need is grace and love and forget the rules and forget the Ten Commandments. All we need is love and acceptance and love one another. How would you respond to that? If you, if you buy into that, then you have no rules. You have no priesthood. You have no structure. And then you go to the last one. If you're a conspiracy theorist, you're the last one. How do you respond when someone says no? That the truth, the church is hiding out of truth. See, you didn't know that there was Mary Magdalene. She was the real leader. And the church hid it all these years. And then someone made it public and happened to make a million dollars off the making it public. And now that's the real. And everyone loves the conspiracy theory. And people send me these videos. Look, someone sent me this video. And it showed me that everything for the last 2,000 years is wrong. And this 15-year-old this kid in South Dakota discovered the truth. Well... How would you respond? What's the relation of the old and the new? We're going to look at the writings of a guy named Irenaeus, and he wrote a great book. Listen to the title of this book. The title of his book is The Refutation and Overthrow of Knowledge Falsely So-Called. Isn't that a catchy title? Much better than some of these newfangled ones like Whatever God. <laughs> the Refutation and Overthrow of Knowledge Falsely So-Called, which is more commonly known as Irenaeus Against Heresies. And basically, we're going to look at one passage from Scripture. This is not Irenaeus, but this summarizes kind of the position of Irenaeus. It is what Jude said in Jude chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. He said, I found it necessary 
You could, you could, Irenaeus could say these same words. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This would have been the position of Irenaeus, that I want to tell you about the faith that was once for all delivered, and we don't need new stuff or new ideas. What we need to do is understand the stuff that's been given to us. So we have the issue of covenant and canon. Let's start with canon. That's a more simple one. Like I said, Irenaeus does not give us a list of the New Testament books. That doesn't come around for another two, three hundred years. But Irenaeus was the first guy, the first guy who used the word scripture when referring to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Something that we commonly say, Old and New Testament is scripture. He was the first guy to use scripture, not meaning Moses, not meaning the prophets, not meaning the Psalms. He used the word scripture to talk about the guys in the New Testament, specifically the gospel writers. All right, and we'll see one of the passages. We're not going to read all of it because okay, it's a very long passage, but this is what he says here. He says, so Matthew among the Hebrews issues a writing of the gospel in their own tongue, while Peter and Paul were preaching the gospel at Rome and founding the church. After their decease, Mark, the disciple, interpreter Peter, also handed down to us in writing what Peter had preached. Then Luke, the follower of Paul, recorded in a book the gospel as it was preached to him. Finally, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also had lain on his breast himself, published the gospel while he was residing at Ephesus. This is the first time that we see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And did you know, the reason why the sequence is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is because that's how Irenaeus wrote it. That's not how they're written chronologically. Mark was the earliest of the gospels. But Matthew was listed first by Irenaeus, so that's why we have the sequence that we have today. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Also for Irenaeus, the number four was a significant number. He says this, the gospels could not possibly be either more or less in number than they are, since there are four zones of the world in which we live and four principal winds while the church is spread over all the earth. And the pillar and foundation of the church is the gospel and the spirit of life is, it fittingly has four pillars, a gospel fourfold in form, but held together by one spirit. He said, if you look at the earth, Okay, north, south, east, and west. Okay, back then they didn't know the world was flat, so there was four corners of the world. And they said the same way that one world, four directions, one gospel, four forms. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He later on in this writing, which we won't read because it's very long, he does reference every other book in the New Testament that we know today except three of them. He doesn't mention 3 John, Philemon, or Jude. Other than that, he mentions every single one of the other books. He doesn't say it like, this is first, this is second, this is third. But he references those books. So when we look back to how did the early Christians know that this epistle was in? Well, Irenaeus was the first guy to give legitimacy and kind of that foundation for it. So that's the issue of canon. Let's get to the fun one, the issue of covenant. How do we know the relation of the new and the old? Do we replace it? Do we add it? Irenaeus introduced this term into the Christian dictionary. And the term is the divine economy. Have you heard this word before? The divine economy. Now you say economy. Economy doesn't mean like GDP, you know, and, 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 and gross national product or, 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 or stock market or whatever it may be. 
Economy, the real word, like the word economy, what it means, it means the management of a house. better very good economy doesn't mean money and things you want this economy doesn't mean money what it means is management and when you talk about the economy you're talking about how someone manages his or her household so Saint Irenaeus uses this word divine economy you can think of it another way is the story or the history of salvation. And he gives us the best, most succinct way of looking at, thank you, Mary, of understanding what God is doing in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and today. And basically, Irenaeus' point is this, is we don't need to throw out the old, like the Marcionites. We don't need to completely be afraid of anything new, like the Ebionites. And we certainly don't need to create new stuff like the crazy Montanists. What we need is wisdom and understanding to understand what it is that God has been doing since the beginning of time. And I'm going to give it to you right here, right now. I'm going to give you the key, the key to understanding. So many times people ask me, I don't understand why God did this. And I don't understand the Old Testament this. And why God allowed this. And how in the New Testament? I'm going to give you the key. I'm going to give you the key to understanding the Bible is in this one sentence I'm about to say, and it sounds so simple, but give me a chance to explain it, and I'm telling you, it's an eye-opener. The key is looking at the Bible, not as the story of God and men, but as the story of God and man. I know I said that backwards. The Bible is the story of God and man, not the story of God and men. What do I mean by that? So often we look at the Bible and we say God is unfair. Because look how God dealt with Abraham. And then he dealt differently with the Samaritan woman. Look how God was with the, 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 the people in the Old Testament, like the Canaanites. And then look how he was in the New Testament with the Samaritans. It's not fair. Like he, like, right, doesn't God conflict himself, contradict himself? Doesn't he say one thing here to some people and then say something different here to different people? Why God in the Old Testament punishes for sins? In the New Testament, he gives grace for sins. Why God in the Old Testament is so brutal? War, death, blood, sacrifice. Why God in the New Testament doesn't care about any of that stuff and seems to preach an exact opposite message? The problem is, you are looking at it as a story of God and men, not God and man. Let me say it this way to you. Imagine today you have a child born. Okay, we got some people with babies all around right there. Let's say I bring a baby up here who's, you know, six months old, a year old. How would you talk to her? Yeah. Okay, yeah, and like the snapping thing. Like, like you do this to babies, right? And you snap really high for some reason. Yeah. Did you just talk? Would you talk to the child the same when the child is five? How about when they're 15? How about when they're 25? How about when they're 95? Maybe that's the only connection, maybe between the beginning and the end. Okay, but for everything in 
between. You talk differently. You talk differently. You talk differently. Why? Because you are changing or because they are changing? You have a young child. Parents, you know this. Young child, you give rules. Don't touch that. Don't stick your finger in there. Don't pull on that. Can't go there. You talk that way to a, 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 a 20-year-old? No. When they become 15, 20 years old, hopefully, you start to teach principles. Respect the house. Don't come home. Don't stay out too late. Uh, you know, be nice to your sister. In the beginning, what is rules eventually transitions to principles, and eventually they graduate college, and you're on your own. Like, I've done everything that I could for you. You're on your own. you got to make the good decision. And you know I'm here for you, but you're on your own. Is that parent contradicting himself? Or is he simply reacting and responding to the state that the child is in? Let me give you one last example, then we'll go back to God. Let's say you're a math teacher, math teacher, and you are in first grade. And you are teaching addition and subtraction. And you teach numbers. And a child asks the question, What's the lowest number? What would you say, math teachers? You'd say zero. You'd say zero. To a five-year-old, you would say the lowest number is zero. And then let's say you're in calculus class in college, and someone says, what's the lowest number? What would you say? Is there a number lower than zero? Absolutely. In fact, half of the numbers that exist are lower than zero. So you lied, math teacher. You're a liar. Are you a liar? No. You teach, even though what you're teaching is contradictory to what you taught before, you're not lying. You're giving what they can handle. Agree? The truth doesn't change. The teacher doesn't change. Who changes? The student. Well, the same is true with God. God doesn't change, and the truth of God never changes. But we, the student, we change. Stop looking at men as individuals. Look at it as man. Let's say man, get rid of Adam and Eve, okay, because they lived in a unique time, so we're talking about after the fall. Let's start with Abraham. Let's say during the time of Abraham, man, mankind, was an infant. How do you deal with an infant? You say, go here. Now go here. Now do this. Good boy, good boy. Maybe that's a dog, not an infant, but similar. You give very clear instructions, speak very, very specifically, because it's an infant. And then they get to those toddler or, or like four or five or whatever it may be. Then all of a sudden, you're not necessarily saying this, this, and that. You're giving rules, lots of rules, because now they can understand. You're not allowed to do this, and you're not allowed to touch that, and you're not allowed to go there, and don't put your brother's head in the toilet. Like You're not allowed to do these specific things you're not allowed to do. And you have to give lots of rules, lots of rules, because they don't know. They don't know. Is the toilet good for his head? Like, you never know. So you got to give lots and lots and lots and lots of rules. That's Moses. When Moses, okay, a little bit in the second book of the Bible, in Exodus, that's when man was like a five-year-old, and man could finally understand some things. So God said, don't do this, and I'll do that, and don't go near there, and make sure you do this. God gave very specifics. Then you got the prophets when they came around. That's kind of the teenage phase, because lots of yelling, okay, lots of, you know what I mean? That's when man was like a teenager and rebellious. So the prophets were saying, you're going to get in big trouble if you do this. 
You better not, mister. You buy if I have to come to you one more time. That's the teenage years. And then Christ came. And when Christ came, man was an adult. An 18-year-old, not a 21-year-old adult. Because Christ was still giving. And Christ was still teaching. But now it was like college. Now it was like principles. Now it was like the reason why we told you not to stick the head in the toilet is. And now we teach the principles. And now we teach the principles of why touching the stove about heat and whatever it may be that you learn in college. And then you graduate college. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the day of Pentecost. And after you graduate college, Father looks back and says, I'm here for you anytime you need me. But you got everything that you need. You don't need a new guy to come teach you new stuff. Those mountainous crazy guys. The conspiracy. You don't need that. I've given you everything that you need. All knowledge has been fulfilled. Don't forget what I taught you as a first grader, second grader, third grader, fourth grader, fifth grader. But realize that it was all coming together for one perfect message that got you to where you are today. You see how that works? Isn't that a nice way of looking at it? That's not me. This is Irenaeus. This is a long passage, but it's so good, so good. It's long, but so good. He took his people in hand. Irenaeus talking about God. Teaching them. Remember, don't think about men. Think about man. Mankind is one person. Don't think about men. He took his people in hand, teaching them, unteachable as they were, to follow him. He gave them prophets, accustoming man to bear his spirit and to have communion with God on earth. He who stands in need of no one gave communion with himself to those who need him. Like an architect, he outlined the plan of salvation to those who sought to please him. Plan of salvation, that's the economy. By his own hand, he gave food in Egypt to those who did not see him. To those who were restless in the desert, he gave a law perfectly suited to them. To those who entered the land of prosperity, he gave a worthy inheritance. He killed the fatted calf for those who turned to him as father and clothed them with the finest garment. In so many ways, listen carefully, think of man, not men. In so many ways, he was training the human race to take part in the harmonious song of salvation. Through many acts of indulgence, he tried to prepare them for the perseverance in his service. He kept calling them, this is beautiful, he kept calling them to what was primary by means of what was secondary. Isn't that nice? He used object lessons like manna, like golden calves, like commandments, like, like all these different lessons to lead them from what is secondary to what is primary. Beautiful stuff. That is through foreshadowings to the reality, through things of time to the things of eternity, through things of the flesh to the things of the spirit, through earthly things to the heavenly things. Through foreshadowings of the future, they were learning reverence for God and perseverance in the service. The law was therefore, talking about the Old Testament, the law was therefore a school of instruction for them and a prophecy of what was to come. Isn't that beautiful? Now you'd be sitting there, if you know the scriptures, if you know the writings of St. Paul, you would say, yeah, St. Paul talked about that same thing. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is no one looked at the writings of St. Paul Outside, like he sent a letter to the Corinthians, that letter was pretty much stuck in Corinth and maybe circulated to a few other areas. He sent a letter to the church in Rome, maybe that got to a few people. But Irenaeus gathered all that together. And he said the same thing that St. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, 4, and 5, that the law was given to us. The Old Testament is not to be thrown out, but it's also not to be revered above Christ. The Old Testament was given to us as a tutor. And back in the day, they understood this message so clearly 
Because what you would do when you had a child is you, like, uh, we have two working parents. So you get a, a tutor to teach that child. ABCs, one, two, threes, whatever it may be. And then the child gets older, what do you do with the tutor? You say, thank you so much. I appreciate you. I don't need you anymore. You don't say, get out of my, like, you don't ignore everything the tutor said. You needed the tutor to get you to where you are. But now the tutor's not needed because the child has learned. That's the Old Testament to the New Testament. One is built on the other. You can't throw away one, but you also can't keep it as higher than what the child is learning in the New. So with that said, let's look at the New Testament. What, what, what are the New Testament? What instruction? God gave us the law, the laws, the specific laws. What was he lifting us higher to? To obedience and the importance of obedience. God gave us the sacrifices. What was he lifting us higher to? To his sacrifice and his love. Because the people saw how difficult it was to offer a sacrifice. And then when he came and offered a sacrifice, he said, that's it. I was showing you that to teach you about this. There was wars in the Old Testament. God commanded wars. Why? To teach the impact of sin and what sin does. God gave us the prophets who sometimes preached tough messages. And you say, why? Because the prophets taught us about God's justice. Each person in the Old Testament gave us something that we needed for our relationship with Christ. So you can say it this way. What's the relationship between the New and the Old Testament? The New Testament presents what the Old Testament prefigures. The New Testament presents or fulfills what the Old Testament foreshadowed. One prepared, one proclaimed. That's the connection between the Old and the New Testaments. That's why the term Old Testament, don't think of Old Testament to mean old as in outdated. Old can mean outdated, like the old iPhone, which is garbage. But old can also mean first. So I say, okay, my old phone and my new phone. That's one definition. But I can also say my old child and my young child and my new child. You don't throw the old away when you get a new child. So this is my new child. Get rid of the old one. No. Old simply means first. And that's it. The first testament and the second testament. Okay? Not old and new in a, in a that kind of way. Old is in a first kind of a way. And what Irenaeus' message was to us was that there may be two testaments or two covenants, but there's one story, one author, one plan. And that is the plan of God from the beginning of time to save man, to dwell inside man. And he used the means that he needed at the time to take us there step by step. For Irenaeus, all of history is in this picture right here. And this is a picture that Irenaeus would say of the first man and the last man. Who was the first man? Adam. Who was the last man? Christ. And Irenaeus looks at the whole story of the Bible of Christianity as a story of two men. One who came and did, and then another who came and undid. Or better way of saying it, redid. One came and created something. The other came and recreated it. The, the fancy word is recapitulation or regeneration. Let me tell you some of the stuff that Irenaeus talked about. 
he talked about the advent of Christ, the Son of God, is a reversal of the advent of Adam, also the Son of God. And by putting his hand to a tree, the first Adam brought us death. And then by putting his hand to a different tree, the second Adam brought us life. The first Adam in bringing death had an accomplice. And that accomplice was Eve. And the second Adam in bringing us life also had an accomplice. And that accomplice was the new Eve, who is Virgin Mary. This is one of the things that Irenaeus wrote. He says, as the human race fell into bondage to death by means of a virgin, Eve, so it is rescued by a virgin. Virginal disobedience, Eve, has been balanced in opposite scale by virginal obedience. Isn't that nice? The first Adam had his Eve, and the second Adam had his new Eve, who was Virgin Mary. It's good stuff. Am I the only one who thinks this is good stuff? It's great stuff. That's Irenaeus. Irenaeus helped us with the big picture of how the plan of salvation works. And I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope that you may not get excited about the history and all the details, but I hope that you can see that what these guys gave to us, that we owe a lot to these guys. These are the unsung heroes of the faith that they died for what we should be living for. One writer talking about the life of Irenaeus summarizes it, okay, his stance and says this. I'm not going to try to pronounce this guy's name. I think it's Italian, but you can read it at the bottom. The harmonious song of the history of salvation is one of continuous melody. But in Christ, there is a sudden transposition, a unique key change, change of key. This decisive shift, this new key is the final key. The fullness has been given and there's nothing further to add. Why well, I thought it was appropriate for us to be talking about Irenaeus, God arranged it that we're talking about him not in December, but actually as we're approaching Lent. Because as we approach Lent, we approach Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we have the events in front of us that Irenaeus was talking all about. That all of us, joining in the nature of Adam, found death. But then by joining in the nature of Christ, we find life. Because in the same way that all of us share the same nature that Adam had, that's why we have sin and death, because we have the same nature. He's our great, 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 whatever grandfather. We also share, Christ came and took the same nature. So we share in the same nature as Christ. And through him, we found death. Through him, we find life. I hope that you can gain an appreciation for some of these unsung heroes. One of the things that's easy in society today is to take shots at the church and to criticize the church. It's the easiest thing that you do. Easiest thing to do is to sit there on your computer and take shots at the church. But what I'm telling you is, I don't say the church is perfect because the church is made of human beings. But what I'm saying is you look at these guys who defended the church. These guys gave their lives for it. Irenaeus died for something that we don't even question and we don't even know was asked. Irenaeus is willing to die for his faith that we just talked about right there. And it's real easy for somebody who has an agenda, and maybe the agenda is to sell a book or make a movie. It's real easy for someone with an agenda with no personal stake in it to take shots at the church. But I hope, and like I said a minute ago, that the truth that they died for would be a truth that we are willing to live for because it's worth it.
Let's stand together and say a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the church that you've given to us. And we thank you, Lord, that you have preserved and you have, have given us the scripture as it is. And so often we take it for granted, Lord. But we know, Lord, that people died to give us what we have in our hands. So help us, Lord, not to take it for granted. Help us not to look at it in like a lax attitude, but to realize that what we have in our hand is gold. And help us to get the most out of that book, Lord, and to understand your plan of salvation, not just of the universe, but for each and every single one of us as you meant it to be. We pray these things in the mighty name of your Son, with the prayers of all of your saints. Here says we pray thankfully, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever.